You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Today we're going to be talking about something really interesting. It's going to be the how to determine the average period of customer use. And this is really important if you're going to be using the short-term rental strategy or the short-term rental exception or the loophole, whatever you want to call it. If you're going to be using that, we know that your property has to have an average stay of seven days or less in most cases. And we're going to explain and talk about how exactly that is calculated, how that average period of customer use is calculated, because believe it or not, it's not as straightforward as you would think. So we're going to be joined here today by our tax manager, Justin Shore, and senior tax advisor, Ryan Carrier, to have this conversation. But before we jump right in, I just want to give everybody a quick update of what is going on in the Tax Smart Investors community. So as I mentioned last week, we did release our lineup of master classes for the upcoming quarter. We're going to be doing a master class on the home sale exclusion today. So if you're not already Tax Smart Insider, if you're listening to this in the morning, you can go ahead and join Tax Smart Insiders by going to www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash insiders. Sign up for a 30-day free trial and you can check out that master class today. It's also going to be recorded if you can't make it live. We also released a really cool new feature within the TaxSmart Insiders community that allows members to get answers to their tax questions 24-7. We're working on making that feature even better on a daily basis, and it's been exciting to see how it's worked so far. We're also going to be revolutionizing our course platform soon, so I'll have exciting announcements uh, for that in the upcoming weeks. So having said that, we're going to dive right into today's episode. and. Before we kind of dive in, let's kind of give a quick overview of the short-term rental loophole for any new listeners who may not be aware of you know, what we're talking about here or long-time listeners who might need a quick refresher. So, Ryan, you want to jump in and kind of just give an overview of the short-term rental loophole? Yeah, make this as brief as possible. So I break it down into two steps. Step one is that the average day per guest is less than seven. Right. So 7.0000000, you get the point or less. Right. So not 7.01. Right. The other thing to mention there in the first step is that we need to have at least two stays before the end of the year. So a lot of people, right, we're kind of just on the second half of the back end of 2023 here. As people are maybe now looking for short term rentals, like I am, right, they might not get the property actually placed in service till the end of the year. We need to be careful of actually having a minimum of two stays. Right. But then part two is material participation. And so we've got multiple steps, uh, tests that we can look at seven in total, the three most common, substantially all, or 100 hours and more than anyone else, or 500 hours. So we need to meet one of those and keep the average day less for seven for that property. If we do, we meet both steps, and that is the short-term rental strategy, which in short moves our short-term rental from no longer being passive, which it is by default, and now moves it to the non-passive uh, side. That's it in a nutshell. Right, right. And it's quite a powerful strategy. And you could use the losses from your short-term rental to offset your W-2 income or income from an active trader business. It'd be quite powerful. And this is why this strategy is so popular. And as Ryan kind of mentioned in there, 
seven days or less. That's super important. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in this episode, how to calculate the average period of customer use. And we'll be specifically focusing on two different topics here. One of them is going to be how to calculate the average period of customer use on a multi-unit property. And then we're going to be talking about how to calculate the average period of customer use when you have a tenant or a guest that's staying in multiple years. For example, they're staying between, say, November 2023 and February 2024. When it spans two years, how is that calculated? Let's just start with the basics, right? You have, let's just say you have a single family property you acquire, you want to use it as a short-term rental. You know you have to keep the average stay under seven days or less. How do you go about calculating the average stay in that case? Yeah, so a single family is easy. Uh, and we're going to get into multifamily here shortly. But a single family, we're just looking at what is the total number of stays that we had. Maybe it's 10 stays, 50 stays, whatever that is. But then we're also looking at how long did each of those people stay? And so it's simple math, right? The total number of days that it was rented divided by the number of stays that we had. So as we think about the short-term rental loophole, if we never go above seven, if we never have a 10-day stay or a 15-day stay or whatever, it's very simple. We know that we're going to stay below seven. But as soon as we start getting above seven stays, even if it's one or two, we now have to be keeping track right, of uh, the actual average that we have for the year. So simple math, total number of days rented divided by the total number of stays that we had for that year. Pretty simple. Got it. And just to be clear in there, as, as you said, it's total amount of days rented, not total amount of days available for rent. So if, in other words, if it's not used, those days are not taken into the calculation if it sits vacant, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think that detail is pretty critical too, because like Ryan mentioned earlier before, you've got to have at least those two stays before the end of the year. And there, there's actually some some court case precedents where taxpayers have tried to argue that, yeah, I had this, this unit, this piece of property that was, it was available and I only made it available in seven day stays or less, but they didn't actually get any bookings for the end of the year and they failed that argument in tax court. So that's why we know you've got to at least have at least a couple. Right, right, right. So that's how you outline if you have one single family property or one unit, that's how you would handle the average stay calculation. And as we recovered in another episode, it has to be 7.0 or less. If it's 7.00001, that's it. You, you blew the strategy. Okay. Now, kind of moving on to multi-unit buildings, when you have, say, a multifamily property, like a duplex or a triplex, something along those lines, things get a little bit more interesting, right? Because you might have one unit that you want to rent out on a long-term basis. So you want to have a 12-month lease, for example. And then, and then you might have the short-term rental unit, in the case of a duplex, that you want to rent out on a short-term basis. And a lot of people, a lot of tax professionals, a lot of comments and conversations going on on online forums, a lot of people believe that you simply take the two units as you look at them as if they were two separate activities or properties. And if unit A has an average stay of 300 days and unit B, right? And unit B has an average stay of six days well, then they're two separate. So you treat unit A as a long-term rental, you treat unit B as a short-term rental. And that's just not quite the case. There's actually a calculation um, for how to determine the average period of customer use. You can find that under reg section 1.469-1E3 for the full language, but I'm going to translate that into 
some more actionable steps without all the jargon. So there's basically a four-step process we need to go through here to determine that average period of customer use, right? So the first things first, you have to break down the property into classes, all right? And the classes are determined based on the difference in daily rent, okay? So usually when you have a long-term rental and you have a short-term rental, the daily rent's going to differ. So for the sake of this conversation here today, we're going to make the assumption that unit A is going to be the long-term rental and unit B is going to be the short-term rental and that they're going to have different daily rents, okay? So for that reason, we're going to break them into two separate classes, all right? So that's the first thing we have to do. The second thing we have to do is we have to determine the average period of customer use for each class. And like Ryan said before, that's done by dividing the total number of days rented by the total periods of customer use. You do that calculation for each separate class, in this case, each, each unit. All right. The next step, step three, is you have to determine what's known as the average use factor for each class. Okay. The average use factor is calculated by dividing the amount of gross rental income for the entire property. So both units, in other words, by the total gross rent per unit or per class. Okay. So to kind of give a quick example of, of what this might look like, let's say unit A, the long-term rental, that's class A, unit A, that has gross rental income of $10,000. Then you're going to have the short-term rental is going to have gross rental income of $20,000. So you have a total of $30,000 in gross rent between the two units. So now when you're determining the average use factor, you're going to take for unit A, you're going to take $10,000, you're going to divide it by 30,000, and you're going to have 33.3% repeating. You're going to do the same calculation for the other side, 20,000 divided by 30,000, you're going to get 67%, right? So we're going to call it 33 and 67 just to keep it simple here. Okay. After you determine the average use factor for each class, you then have to multiply the average use factor for each class by the average state for each class. Okay. So let's just say that class A, the long-term rental unit has an average stay of three hundred days, right? So you're going to multiply that by 33%, right? That's going to give you 99. Okay. Then we're going to go ahead and we're going to multiply the other side by 67%. So that's six days by 67%. And we're going to get 4.02. Now what you have to do in step four is you have to sum the average use factors for all classes to find the average period of customer use. So again, the average use factor for unit A or class A, the long-term rental was 99. The short-term rental is 4.02. We remember that rounding matters here. Okay, you can't round down. You have to, to take it out really far. So you add 99 to 4.02, you get 103.02. Now, I know this might go without saying, but 103.02 is greater than seven. Um, <laughs> and that means that you would blow the short-term rental loophole. Okay, so that's how you calculate it on a multi-unit building. Again, for anybody who's listening out there who wants to check out this code section for yourself, okay, it's reg section 1.4691, excuse me, dash one E3, and has the average period of customer use calculation all written out in its full glory. But that's pretty much how it works in a nutshell. When you're using a multifamily building, you're not, or multi-unit building rather, you're not looking at it 
by on a unit per unit basis, you have to go through this calculation and determine the average period of customer use on the building itself. So if you're out there, if you're in the tax smart investors community and you hear say it's calculated on the whole building, this is what we mean. It's not just on a per unit basis. Having said that, now that we know how it works on a multi-unit building, we have some interesting things going on here too, right? Because a lot of time investors want to buy a property maybe towards the end of the year and place in the service towards the end of the year. And sometimes they'll have a lease or a guest stay over two different periods, right? And that can happen with a long-term lease too, um, where you might have a lease that that you might have started in, I, I don't know, let's call it February, right? And then it ends January 31st of the following year. So now this lease spans two years. And the question becomes, how do you calculate the average period customer use for the year? Okay. Is it just within the 365 day calendar year or is it, does it work a little bit different? I'm going to turn that over to Justin. Yeah. So this particular uh, situation, I'd say, you know, uh, like Tom said, comes up every once in a while when uh, somebody has a property that maybe, maybe it's a really, um, attractive location for something like, uh, you know, Christmas vacation type of destination or whatnot. And you wind up having a, a tenant who stays, I'll use for this example, um, they book from December 20th to January 10th. So the the question that arises here is that we'll, we'll say that that's happening this year of December 20th of 2023, and it's going to January 10th of 2024. So maybe maybe somebody listening to this is going, oh yeah, my, my mountain property just had a booking like this. Um, so the question is, is that an 11 day stay in 2023 and a 10 day stay in 2024, or is this a 21 day stay as a whole? Because this is somebody who they booked that one continuous stay for that time frame. I can see how like logically, you know, someone might conclude, oh, okay, I'm only going to count the calendar days that are actually in this year um, when trying to determine my average day stay. So um, that's the big question. Is it 11 days this year and 10 days next year, or are we dealing with a 21-day stay? And then even further, if we are dealing with a 21-day stay, is that a 21-day stay in 2023 or is it a 21-day stay in 2024? Like, which one do I have to put that in? So we have to get even deeper into the Treasury regulations to find uh, like more information on like how to deal with a scenario like this. And it's all the way down to so a similar area of the treasury regulations as what we've talked about previously, but it's under 1.469-1E3-III cap C1, so way down in there, um, that states the aggregate number of days in all periods of customer use for property in the class. And then in, in parentheses, they say, taking into account only periods that end during the taxable year or that include the last day of the taxable year. And I probably couldn't emphasize that word or enough. Um, in, in when we're dealing with the, the tax code and treasury regulations, the word or versus and are very, very uh, delineating between like how we have to actually read these sentences. Because if we're dealing with an or statement, that literally means that you could be satisfying either part of that sentence in order to be falling into like that, that jurisdiction, so to speak. If we're ever dealing with an and statement, we know that every single one of the criteria in the and statement has to be met. But we're not dealing with an and, we're dealing with an or. So it's an either or type of scenario. So the interesting thing with this is that in our example, if we have a December 20th to January 10th type of booking, and we apply this statement to that particular stay, 
what we find is that that 21-day stay actually has to be counted as a 21-day stay in 2023 and also in 2024. So it's going to be that extended stay is actually going to disrupt your average stay, you know, your aim for seven days or less, and actually both tax years. And the reason why is because in the case of 2023, the first part of that phrase includes the last day of the taxable year. Well, our situation of December 20th to January 10th, it is satisfying that part of the sentence. So it's hitting the first one. We don't even necessarily have to look towards the second part of the sentence The sec- uh, that's after the word or. Now, in the case of 2024, if we're looking at specifically that year, the reason why we would have to include this, this in- entire period or this entire stay is that uh, the January 10th exit date or move out date it is satisfying the second part of that or statement in that it is a period that ends during the taxable year of 2024 because it's ending on January 10th, 2024. So kind of a funky scenario there um, in that you just have to be a little bit, uh, I don't want to say wary, but careful with extended stays, maybe during the holidays that are potentially going to wrap around the end of the tax year. And it could be somewhat problematic if you're in the scenario like we talked about, like Ryan mentioned, we're recording this in July. A lot of people could be looking at buying their first short-term rental that maybe they're going to place in service in the fourth quarter of this year. And if you have a very low number of stays before you get to the end of the year, um, something like this, a scenario like this could be a little bit of a tripwire for you. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure it's not what everybody wants to hear, but unfortunately that is how the code is written. Okay. So now we have another scenario that we might come across. And that's like, let's say, for instance, that, you know, I have a long-term rental that I have today and right, I want to convert it to a short-term rental in 2024. Uh, I realize that I'm in a good market and I want to convert that. But here's the stipulation, right? My tenant has a long-term lease, 12-month lease, and it ends January 31st, 2024. Okay. In, in that scenario, again, remember, in 2024, I want to turn my short-term rental, my long-term rental, excuse me, into a short-term rental next year within 2024. But I have to keep, to do that, I actually have to keep the average stay under seven days or less. How does what we just discussed here and what you just outlined, how does that impact that scenario? Yeah. And, you know, as a, like a practical matter, we get this question somewhat often as, you know, when, when clients hear about the short-term rental exception or loophole, as they say, oh man, you know, I bought this property last year at the beginning of the year, I, I just put it as a typical annual lease, but I'd love to change it into a short-term rental now so that I can tap into these exceptions or these benefits. But my tenant's not going to move out until January 31st or April 30th or something like that. Can I turn it into a short-term rental in 2024 and, and qualify for all these exceptions for all these you know kind of easy benefits? So using the, the same section we were just looking at, that same wording is that if the period ends in the taxable year, or if it includes the last day of the year, we have to take into account that entire stay. So this is a little bit more problematic with something like an annual lease, because we'll just assume that it's a typical annual lease, like February 1st to January 31st, so that it's we're dealing with a 365-day period. So again, you know, if you're just logically trying to approach this from the standpoint of, well, my tenant's going to move out on January 31st, so I only have a 31-day stay I can probably get my average down below seven before the end of 2024 with a whole bunch of like weekenders, for example. Unfortunately, again, that wording there is a bit of a tripwire here because even though it's it's only 31 days in 2024, that period was actually a 365-day period that just happened to end in 2024. So this particular stay is going to be counted as a 365-day stay. So 
basically the bad news in that situation is like if if you're in that case or you're in that scenario where you have a long-term lease ending in like January, February, the math uh, makes it impossible to be able to hit that short-term rental exception by getting down to average days of seven or less. Because that 365-day stay, no matter how many short stays you get before the end of the year in 2024, you're not going to be able to work that average all the way down to seven. Now, what, <laughs> what some people might hear on this and go, well, Justin, that that doesn't make any sense. Because if you're telling me that I have a 365-day stay that ends in January, what happens just for easy math? Like, what happens if I now I'm booking it as a short-term rental the rest of 2024? What if I have like 35-day stays throughout the rest of the year? And I'm sure might be some weekenders and, and stuff in there, but we'll just we'll keep the math simple. That would mean that I've got 150 days in 2024. And if I add that to the 365 days that you're telling me, that, that equals 515. And that's not logical because that's way more days than there are in the calendar year. And again, if we're circling back to that original simplistic calculation we, we started with at the beginning, it's the number of days rented divided by the number of tenants to get the average day stay. Well, in that scenario, if I'm saying 515 days, we had 31 different tenants. So it's an average of 17. We're we're well above seven in, in that in that scenario. But that doesn't make any sense. We have 515 days uh, during the calendar year. So that can't be right. There is actually a uh one one court case in particular, and it was Michael G. Uh, Moreno v USA. And in this particular case, and it's funny, we've actually looked at this one before because it addresses the rounding issue as well. But the in this particular case, the tax court was fighting back against the taxpayer's assertion that his average was roughly one and a quarter days because he was making the argument that he had, I believe it was 44 uh, rental days and roughly 35 different uh, customers that that were making up that amount. Um, but the tax court said that he actually had 508 days with six different tenants. And it was a bit of a, an issue between like who was the actual lessee in that situation because he was leasing to someone who was then effectively subleasing out to the end actual customers. In that position, the tax court said, no, your leases are with the initial lessee that has these extended uh, periods that they can use the property. And part of the reason why in that particular case that they had uh, 508 days as the calculation is there were some periods with tenants that overlapped. The fact of the matter is what we're looking at here is we have context here that proves that the tax court will and can take the position that there is it's possible to have more than 365 days of customer use in one tax year. So it's not necessarily going to be limited to that 365 days. So that's a hefty amount of support for where this calculation comes into play of how it's possible to have more than 365 days in your calculation. That's an excellent breakdown. And, you know, after reviewing everything before we, you know, we got ready for this episode today, I've really read through everything. And when you think about that or statement, like you mentioned under the reg section, it really does make a lot of sense why they would word it in the way that they did, right? Periods that end during the, the year or that include the last day of the taxable year. Because if you really think about it, right? If you look at the definition of average period customer use, and we look at it a little bit more closely, sometimes what you'll see is it says when a t when someone when a, a customer uses it, basically, it, it regardless of whether or not it's one agreement or subsequent agreements. So you have tenants go back to back to back to back agreements over a multi-year period, and that would be all one period of customer use. Could be 
more than 365 days. And then when you look at the language of during the taxable year, or that includes the last day of the taxable year, this all kind of makes sense that, yeah, an average period, a, a, a period of customer use can extend more than 365 days, which is why they worded it in the way that they did. And then we basically find out that long story short, lo and behold, the aggregate period of customer use of 508 days in that tax court case kind of confirms that. So very interesting stuff. You really have to be careful of when your periods are starting, when they're ending, um, in order to determine that average period of customer use. All right. So having said that, everything we covered today, I just want to kind of point out some interesting things about taxes, right? And tax strategies and positions. Sometimes in the tax code, there are things that are very, very, very clear cut, very simple. And if you stay within those guidelines and you have your substantiation, you're putting yourself in a very good position to ever defend that position under audit. However, there can be cases or, or at times when things within the tax code do carry ambiguity. And when that happens, you have to not only look at the code sections and the regulations, but you also have to start looking at task court cases and other authoritative sources to find solutions and how it's been treated in the past. And sometimes, like in the case of Michael G. Moreno that Justin found, there's a pretty definitive conclusion here of how this kind of all pans out. But in other cases, there's not always a definitive conclusion and there's ambiguity. And when that happens, you have to deal with risk versus reward, right? As tax professionals, we only have to, we have to believe that we could have more than a 50% chance of defending a position. So if we gather enough information, for example, to make us comfortable with that belief that we have more than 50% chance, we could go ahead and take that position. But there's still another 49% chance that we're wrong, right? And that you could lose the case. So, so the point I'm trying to make here today is that some strategies are very simple and straightforward. You could stay within those guidelines, but sometimes things get more nuanced and more complex than it meets the eye. And in those cases, you really have to make sure you're you're, you're dotting, you're crossing all your T's and dotting all your I's. And if you can't come to a definitive conclusion on something, you have to be comfortable with that ambiguity. Okay. If you want to take that position, otherwise you have to play it safe. So I hope uh, this episode is helpful for a lot of people out there. I know there's a lot of debate and a lot of uh, misinformation out there on how to calculate the average period of customer use, but we all broke this down today using the code, using task court cases. Um, so hope that helps everybody out there. Having said that, if you do have questions, if you do want to learn more about the short-term rental strategy and how to use it, you can get the short-term rental task course for free, right? The short-term rental task course has already helped over 600 investors understand and use the short-term rental loophole to reduce their taxes. You can get it for free when you sign up for a 30-day trial to our Tax Smart Insiders community. You get that by going to www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash free STR course. Again, that's www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash free STR course. You get the STR course for free when you sign up for a 30-day trial at the Tax Smart Insiders community. I'm going to go ahead and drop that in the show notes, and uh, we'll see you on the inside, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Tax Smart REI. All right, so we're actually back with a bonus bit to this episode because after we wrapped up, we're actually talking about this a little bit more. And Justin actually brought up a really good point about situations where you might actually get a lease towards the end of the year and how things can be a little uh, a little ambiguous there and how and how that might play out. So Justin, you want to dive into that? Yeah. So we thought, you know, for like another practical scenario is that maybe you have this property that you get into service late in the year and you get a couple of shorter-ish stays, maybe around like Thanksgiving, first week or two of December that are like 
eh, maybe four days around Thanksgiving, and then you get another weekend or something at the beginning of December. So you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm pretty well below seven. I've got at least a couple stays. And, and maybe it's a, a bit of an off season or something for that market. And somebody that is interested in the property says like, hey, you know, I, I would like to rent from, you know, this, say, say December 25th, um, but they're looking at an extended stay. And maybe it's like they're, they want like a 30 day stay, or maybe it's even extreme, like a 365 day stay. They want to sign an annual lease. And, and maybe you're at the point where you're like, I, I don't know. I didn't get very many bookings like I thought I would. So maybe this isn't a good short term rental. It'll be better for a long term rental. Um, but this person who's wanting to sign for a longer period, it still fits into my model because if they start on December 25th, well, you know, like we were saying before, would that just be an eight day stay? And because I had those couple of shorter stays in November, December, will I still stay below seven? Well, like we were talking about before in a practical sense, yeah, this might make sense, you know, to be able to book that as a 365, like an annual lease. Well, the pitfall in that scenario again would be that. Yeah, you only have eight days that actually fall in the calendar year, but since it is uh, wrapping around the end of that year, we're triggering that or statement. Now we have another, this is a 365-day stay that's going to be counted in the current year. So um, that's kind of turning the original scenario we had on its heels where you've got, uh, you do have some shorter stays in 2023, but it just so happens that you wind up with maybe a 30-day or 365-day stay for the extreme example um, that ends up just wrapping around the end of the year and then pushing your average way above seven. The same thing applies if you were to place a property in the service and and actually have a tenant sign a long-term, you know, 12-month traditional lease on like December 26th. Sure, that might only be, I think, what's that, five days of the year, um, mm. five or six days of the year. And um, even in that case, because of this or statement we're talking about, you know, that's actually a much longer stay. And that wouldn't count as seven days or less for mm. that particular year. So the point, again, what we're trying to do with this episode is kind of break down the, the confusion out there with how the average stay of customer use is, is calculated. And again, we, we broke it down. We found the regulation section, which breaks down quite literally how to make this calculation. And then we also dove into a task court case, Michael G. Moreno, that Justin, that Justin was able to bring to the table here. And we looked at how this actually played out in a real tax court case. So hopefully that helps everybody out there. Again, if you do have questions, encourage you to join our tax smart insiders community. Uh, but that's it for today's episode. Have a great week and we'll catch you on the next episode of tax smart REI. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.